the gory details. But do you like going to the dentist? Everybody agrees the dentist is fun to go to. Yeah. No, most of us don't like it. Uh, years ago, I went to the dentist, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of strapped in the chair. My mouth's cranked open. And it was like slow motion. I saw, okay, the dentist is talking to the, um, his assistant uh, without a mask. And I see slow motion, uh, some spit from his mouth, fly through the air into my mouth as he's talking. And there's nothing I could do. It's just cranked, cranked way open. And he's just going on telling his story. And I'm just, um, you know, helpless there. And so this coupled with some other things, uh, they're always trying to harass me to get more cleanings than my insurance would cover. And, and he could show up late, but I couldn't show up late. Anyway, you could tell I was not super excited. So um, I stopped going to the dentist. And uh, I think maybe five years passed or something like that, several years, uh, because it just was not a, a pleasant experience. So a couple months ago, we decided, well, really should go back to the dentist. So I went to uh, the dentist, and it w- was actually a lot more pleasant experience until the end when they give me this list of here's the things you need to address. And uh, I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. And I took that piece of paper, and uh, I'm not sure where that piece of paper is. Uh, I think my wife knows. But, um, but I just kind of uh, disregarded that. Well, partly because of the, the price tag at the end of it, and partly because of my time, and partly because my teeth don't really bother me very much, I just didn't respond. But I think they intended that I would respond. Actually, they, they made me some kind of deal if I responded in 24 hours, uh, which, which I didn't. But uh, a lot of times life's like this. We know that something is, you know, we have this vague sense that something's important or significant, um, but we just kind of don't get around to doing something about it because it maybe uh, we're not bothered by it that much or... Or we just, you know, don't feel like we have the time. The problem is sometimes we do that with things we encounter in Scripture. We come away saying, well, that's an interesting list. <laughs> maybe that's even convicting. Maybe, uh, maybe it's even uh, disturbing or maybe it's encouraging or whatever it might be. And then we, we kind of just go on and don't respond. Well, the truth is, Oh, sorry, this is not me. This is some anonymous boy and a, with the dentist. The truth is that the good news about Jesus, it, it calls for a response. Not just a, hmm, that's really interesting, but it calls for us to, to react to it, to do something about it. In fact, Jesus' message is a call for a response, as we'll see today. Uh, near the beginning of Mark, in, in the first chapter, we get a summary of Jesus' message. This is what he went around saying. And in, in this, Mark answers a couple questions for us throughout the book. I think these would be really important for us to wrestle with, is what was Jesus' essential message? What, what did he go around saying? What, what was um, the heart or the core of his message? And also, what kind of response does his message call for us? call for. So this is really important for a couple reasons. One is, is it helps us throughout the whole rest of the book of Mark as we study it and we see Jesus uh, doing things and saying things. It helps us to make sense of those in the context of what his basic message is. But it's also the same essential message that he's told us to pass on. And so it's real important that we grasp what the core message 
of Jesus is. Because Jesus said and did a lot of things. Um, we, could, we quote him for various reasons. We see Jesus was for prayer and against divorce. He's for loving your neighbor. He's against hypocrisy. He's for paying taxes. He's against materialism. He's for children. He's against hatred. And you can see all these different things, and we could talk about those, and there's, there's good lessons and points. But what is the essential core of the message of Jesus? What did he go around saying all over um, Galilee and Jerusalem and everywhere in between? Well, this is what we discover in the book of Mark in chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15, the summary of Jesus' message. So this is after the two weeks ago, the thematic statement in, in 1-1 where we're presented with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. This is what the book's about. And then uh, last week, the whole prologue scenes in the wilderness uh, in verses 2 to 13. And now, today, we begin Act 1. The drama of Mark begins. The prologue is over. The, scenes are, the scene is changing We're no longer in the wilderness, now we are in Galilee. It's no longer John, now it's Jesus, and we get down to the story. Verse 14 of chapter 1 says this, or it starts like this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So scene change. We're in the wilderness, we're in the desert, and now we're in Galilee. Um... No more John the Baptist. He fades into the background, which was his intent all along, is that Jesus would increase and he would decrease. So today I'm not John the Baptist. I do not have my sandals on. You could rest assured. You could relax for those of you who are nervous about me wearing sandals. Um, um, But we, we changed the focus. So now we start the ministry of Jesus. And what did he go around doing? The second part of that verse, Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel of God. This is a summary of his ministry, and pretty soon we'll get a summary of his message. Jesus' ministry was proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news. Uh, This should seem familiar because this is supposed to be our ministry as well. Remember when we talk about essentials the first few months of this year, and what should be the core habits that everyone who follows Jesus should be involved in? Well, one of those is... When we relate, relate to the world, we're supposed to restore the world with the good news about Jesus. This is a core habit. So as we go through Mark, I just want to highlight some of these uh, just as a way of reminder as we go along. So this is the good news of God. It's the good news from God. It's the good news about God. And so how should we respond to this? What kind of response does the gospel call for? And this morning we'll look at two ways that really we must respond to the good news about Jesus. So if you're taking notes uh, in your bulletin, first, the good news about Jesus calls for an urgent response. It's timely. It's critical. It's like, you need to get these teeth fixed today. This is not something you just put off for uh, indefinitely. Uh, Verse 15 says, and you'll notice in these verses, every phrase is just bursting with significance. It starts off, his message says, the time is fulfilled. It's kind of this ominous, <laughs> the time is now, it has arrived. Um, 
That, that word for time has the sense of kind of an appointment or, a, or um, like an appointed time. It's not just like the passing of time. So the appointed time is fulfilled. This really is, is a prophetic fulfillment kind of statement. And we see in the earlier parts of the book that we looked at the, um, the last couple of weeks, uh, in verses 2 to 3, we see the prophetic announcements about the coming of the Lord, the one who would come. We see John announcing in the wilderness the one who would come after him, who is much greater and will, and will uh, immerse you into the Holy Spirit or immerse you with the Holy Spirit. And uh, so the one is coming. And Jesus shows up and he says, the time is now. <laughs> this is happening right now. All that fulfillment is taking place. It's a timely message. And then he says, he continues on and says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand, it it draws near both spatially and in time. It's like it's right here. It approaches the very kingdom of God. But what does it mean (laughs) that the appointed time of the Messiah has arrived and the kingdom of God draws near. Well, in the last century, a great deal of ink has been spilt on that topic to trying to answer that question of what exactly is the kingdom. And, uh, and we, we often talk about, well, the Old Testament it prophesied this Messiah, and then New Testament, well, look, he's here. But uh, those who, uh, who lived and grew up reading and studying the Old Testament and hadn't met the Messiah yet had all kinds of uh, different ideas about what that might look like, what the kingdom would look like, what the coming one would look like. And, and it helps, I think, to trace that line of thinking or the development just a little bit for us through the Old Testament. So, um, so hold on just for a moment, a few moments, as you look at the development of this idea of kingdom and Messiah. Or I should say the development of the understanding of the idea of kingdom and Messiah in the Old Testament. So in the law, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, the covenant between God and his people Israel looks a whole lot like uh, the Caesarean covenants between a king and their subjects in the ancient Near East. So in other words, it's presented as God himself is the king and the people of Israel were his subjects. So God is king, he's the only king, and we follow him. Well, as you move into the judges period, this long kind of awkward stage, um, God is still uh, theoretically king of Israel, but the people just aren't um, really uh, remembering that. And it gets them into all kinds of trouble. And so as we get to the end of the judges period and we start into the kingdom period, we see the people cry out for, we want a king like everybody else, which in many ways was a rejection of God as their only king. Like, hey, everybody else has a human king that we could see and touch. And, and God says something like, uh, okay, but you'll be sorry. Um, and so uh, Saul becomes the king. And after that, David becomes the king. God's choice of a king. And interesting, God establishes David's kingdom. A human king, he establishes as, uh, as, as the ruler, as, as, the, as the monarch. So we have this really interesting thing happening where the monarchy of David was looked upon as the concrete manifestation of God's rule. So we had 
just God is king, and then there's people. And then we have this establishment of human king kind of as a representative of God ruling the people. Well, in our study of kings last year, first saying kings with what went wrong, we saw that uh, that scenario didn't work too well, and it's just Solomon on downward, it just completely fell apart. What happened with God's established dynasty? So we see this divide where, where God is still keeping his covenant with David's dynasty, but, but experientially the kingdom is just completely ruined and is disappearing. And so we see in some of the Psalms and we see the prophets, there starts to be this focus on a, on a, a different kind of Messiah who would come and make all things right. Not just you know the next in line, in the king of David, but something more than that. And this all comes to a real culmination in the book of Daniel, where we see these, these just wild, amazing uh, prophecies, and we start to hear the Messiah referred to in more transcendent kind of terminology. So now the coming one is much more than just a human ruler, but one would come who is, who is, you know, is heavenly, is transcendent, is like the Son of God. And so we have all these things rattling around in the minds of, of uh, first century Jews and uh, trying to piece all these together. So what, what is the Messiah? What is the kingdom? Uh, God is king, yes, but then he made a covenant with David that he's the king. Um, there's this transcendent one that will come to rule over all things. And so you can see why they might be kind of confused. You can see why we might be kind of confused. And so Jesus shows up. There's two main ways that people at that time were viewing the coming of the Messiah and the king. Are you still with me? I know it's, it's all a little much. One way is we might call it apocalyptic. In other words, there's not uh, any expectation of someone, uh, you know, a human king on the throne, on David's throne. It's, it's more like everything's going to end in catastrophe, and then there's going to be a spiritual kingdom, uh, ultimately. That, that's one way people were, were looking at things. The other way, which was probably a lot more common, is, is completely political. They thought, well, we're under the thumb of, of Rome. We've been kicked around by, you know, by Babylon and Greece and everybody else, and, uh, and now we're awaiting God to bring that true... Uh, uh, son of David to bring political freedom and so Israel can once again be free and prosperous, etc. A political revolution. So these two strains are what people are thinking. So Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom is at hand. <laughs> and people are like, ah, yeah, we, no, I don't know what that means. And it's all, um, that's what the whole rest of the book of Mark helps us understand. Here's something that Warren Wiersbe comments on this. It says, no doubt most Jews read political revolution into the phrase kingdom of God. But that was not what Jesus had in mind at all. His kingdom has to do with his reign in the lives of his people. In fact, that's maybe the definition of kingdom is his reign in the lives of his people. It is a spiritual realm and not a political organization. It's not just political, and it's not just out in the future, but what is it? So as Mark's gospel unfolds, Jesus will clarify much of what the kingdom is and isn't. 
Jesus likes to tell little stories about the kingdom to help us understand what it is. But if we kind of boil it down, we might say that the kingdom of God is God's sovereign ruling. The working out of God's sovereignty, of his, his rule. The, we might say the specific experience of God's sovereignty. This is a much broader concept than uh, any particular understanding of the kingdom. Uh, R.T. France uh, explains it like this. The phrase kingdom of God should not be read as a term with a single specific referent. Whether that's a time, a place, an event, or a situation. It is therefore not appropriate to even ask whether the kingdom of God is past, present, or future as if it had a specific time reference like the day of the Lord, God's kingship is both eternal and eschatological. It's both fulfilled and it's awaited. It's both present and imminent. There's some heavy things in there, I admit. The thing is, we tend to ask questions like this when we run across the kingdom of God in the Bible. We want to ask, well, is the kingdom of God in eternity? Uh, Is the kingdom of God... Is, is that the millennium? Is the kingdom of God simply in the hearts of believers? Is it centered in Jerusalem? Uh, maybe it's centered in the new Jerusalem. Is it in heaven? Is it here already? Is it still to come? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We might say that kingdom of God is almost like saying God is doing something. It's not exactly that, but it's almost like saying God is doing something. Is God always doing something? Yes. But are there times when you say, wow, God just did something, or it looks like God is about to do something, or we're in the midst of God doing something? That's the kingdom of God being expressed. We talk about God's sovereignty. Is God always in control of things? Yes. Sometimes we could say, wow, we saw the sovereignty of God just playing out right before our eyes. That is the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus introduces this message, the time is now, the kingdom is here, it's this sense of real urgency. We need to do something about this. We need to respond. This is the culmination of all things, and we're going to miss out if we don't respond to this message. Now is the moment of decision. We are all on the verge of missing out on what God is doing if we don't respond to the good news about Jesus. Now here is kind of a problem. Uh, I think growing up, uh, the way we talked about eternity and heaven and, and maybe kingdom uh, sounded a lot like fire insurance. So there's this um, eternity out there after you die, and uh, you better get your fire insurance policy before you meet eternity, uh, before that uh, you know that random tree just falls on you or whatever might happen to a kid. Uh, for me, it was more likely that I would fall out of the tree as a kid. But um, the point is that uh, you, your life might be fine now, but you don't know when your end is coming, so you better get your policy. 
And how you do that is you repeat this, uh, this prayer, and then you're in. And then you kind of go on with your life trying to be good, and, uh, and one day when you meet your maker, uh, you'll be set for heaven. Well, no one would have said it all exactly like that, but that's kind of the impression. Uh, that's what I got out of what they said. That's how we kind of talked about life. It's like this will set you up for the future. But the problem is we're not fine right now. <laughs> we need Jesus right now. It's more like we have some disease that's eating us up inside, it's destroying us, um, that will eventually kill us, and we need it fixed right now. The time of decision is right now. It's not just you try to time it right where I'm going to try to have as much fun as I can and then I'll get right with God you know, right before that bad thing happens to me. No, we all need him desperately right now. Imagine a place where God's rule is fully experienced. You know, what, what might that look like? A place where um, everybody does what God wants, what God desires, um, people respond to each other in, in godly ways. What, what is that place like? It's full of, of righteousness. It's full of joy. It's full of peace. Um, Paul describes the kingdom of God in these terms. The kingdom of God, well, it's not about food, etc. It's of righteousness, and it's of peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, we all know that we need and want peace and joy, and on our good days, we know we also uh, need righteousness. Um, this sense of being right with God and right living just coming out of us, this, this is what we desire, and that's like a place where, where uh, God's rules is being lived out. Wouldn't, wouldn't we like that kind of a place? <laughs> I, would, I would love that kind of place. We desperately need it right now. We're missing Jesus' message if we think that um, Jesus is an interesting concept to talk about in coffee houses and in, on the internet and in pubs and in classrooms and academia and not actually respond to him right now. And we're missing Jesus' message if we think that he is simply a ticket to a better option for an afterlife. We need him right now. We need his righteousness, his peace, his joy, his life. We need it urgently. So the good news about Jesus, it, it calls for an urgent response. We just, we just got to respond right now. Today is the hour. The time has come. The kingdom is just right here knocking on our door. But how do we enter into the kingdom? This realm of righteousness, of, of peace, of joy, and all those things. How do we enter into that right now? What kind of response brings a person into the realm of, we might say, of what God is doing? Well, the good news about Jesus calls for a heart response. That's what places us in the realm of what God is doing. If the time is now and the kingdom's right here, what must we do? Well, here is the rest of Jesus' very short sermon. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the response. That's how we enter into the realm of the kingdom. That's how we become on the right side of what God is doing. 
being part of what God is doing, it's not about being at the right place at the right time. It's not about being born in the right family. It's not about being uh, good enough. It's not about going to the right church. It's about a change of heart about Jesus. And he describes it in two words that we'll take a look at for a moment. The first is uh, repent. He simply says repent. <laughs> that's, that's an internal change of thinking. It's turning away from one path or belief or conviction in, in turning the other direction. You're, you're turning your back on a, on a, uh, a previous route. That's what repentance is. Believe is kind of the other side of that. It means to have trust in, to have faith in. So we put these together. It's a turning from and it's a turning to. Um, Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Repentance and belief, they're bound together in one piece. It's not like this process over time of succession. It's, it's talking about maybe two sides of one Thing happening. To repent is to turn away from an existing object of trust, um, that is, ourselves. <laughs> to believe is to commit oneself wholeheartedly to an object of faith. So it's a turning from, it's a turning to. So Jesus' basic core message is not, add to your beliefs about Jesus. You've heard some things? Well, let me tell you more about Jesus. No, it's a change your beliefs about Jesus. It's not incorporate more Jesus, but it's change your allegiance to King Jesus. It's not, well, you just got to have more faith. No, you need to change the object of your faith to be Jesus. It's not a message of clean up your act, repeat a prayer, join a church, but it's repent and believe the good news. Whatever you were trusting in before, uh, stop that (laughs) and trust in Christ alone. We, we trust a lot of things to make sense of life. We kind of cling to these things because we think this will make us happy or this will be meaningful or this might make me live a little longer or this will make me get ahead. And we just grab onto these things. We think we're grabbing onto life. And all those are futile. Repenting and believing means we let go of those things and trust Christ alone. Uh, often when I think of uh, trust, uh, that, that concept, I think of, of rappelling and rock climbing and, and uh, rock climbing equipment and lots of stories I could tell about that. But I'm going to tell a story about at Hume Lake, there's a thing they call the pamper pole. Has anybody been to Hume Lake and done the pamper pole? So, yeah, all right. It's pretty fun, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was my experience on the pamper pole. So I don't know if you could tell in these pictures, but you climb up. Well, it's basically an enormous telephone pole, and it has these little uh, rock climbing attachments on it, just like this one here. Happened to come across some of these one time. So this looks like a big, nice handhold now, but picture yourself many feet off the ground, shimming up uh, this telephone pole. It's rather intimidating, and and I just hung on to these for dear life. Now, now granted, you have a harness on, but, but it's hard to... Um, you know, it's hard to, to get that around your head that you'll be okay if you fall because it really feels like you're not going to be okay. So clinging to this log, holding on these little things, 
And, uh, and that's how we kind of grab onto life. Oh, I don't want to miss out on this, etc. Well, the idea of the pamper pole is you get to the top, and the very hardest part is you have to put yourself on top of the pole. So the inset there, you see uh, the big move of trying to, you know, actually put your feet on the top of that pole. Well, when I was doing it, uh, the pole is just shaking like this. And I'm thinking, what kind of sick joke is that to shake the pole while I'm trying to climb up? And then I realize it's just my legs, uh, my legs shaking. I'm shaking the pole, and it's, uh, it's absolutely terrifying. So once you're standing up on top, the idea is uh, you leap out as hard as you can and grab onto this kind of trapeze uh, sort of a handle. And then, and then they let the handle down to the, to the bottom. Well, that moment is a lot like repent and believe. What we like to do is cling to the pole. Oh, I got you know, to cover all the bases. And then we, want, oh, we also want this handle, too. We want Jesus, and we want to pull that over, too. It doesn't work that way. You stand on top of that pole, and you abandon all those other things you're trusting, and you just leap into midair into Jesus' arms. And that's repent and believe. It's a turning from and a turning to. In the ministry I was involved in before, I worked with a lot of uh, new members and with baptisms, which is pretty fun. Um, and I heard a lot of people share their testimonies. And I would typically look for, uh, in various terminology, look for them to express when they uh, turned from and turned to, when they uh, repented and, be- and put their trust in Jesus. Because sometimes the stories come out like, well, I always, uh, I always kind of believed in Jesus, or, well, you know, I grew up in the church, and here I am, I'm still in the church, uh, in some form of that. And I think, where, where did you turn from and turn to? When did that happen to you? Um, this, this morning... Uh, in our new members' small group, uh, we heard a couple of people's stories of the points in their lives when they turned from and turned to, when they put their trust in Christ. Sometimes we just trust ourselves, maybe our own goodness. Maybe sometimes we trust our, our parents' faith as if it's just kind of inherited. Like you're, you know, well, my parents had blue eyes, so now I have blue eyes. They were Christians, so I'm a Christian, whatever it might be. But, but no, there needs to be a time when you've turned from trusting something else and turned to trusting Jesus. So Jesus, like nobody else can, is just so uh, perfectly wraps all this up in just a couple of little phrases. Kingdom's right here. Repent and believe. In In the gospel, in the good news. So the good news calls for a response from our hearts, an internal change of heart. When you repent and believe, you can experience the benefits of being in the kingdom, righteousness, peace, joy, not just in the future, but right now. Uh, Let's talk about that just briefly. We start out saying the good news about Jesus calls for a response. Well, that response is right now. And it affects us right now. It's not just something, again, that we tuck away for the future. Um, In Mark's gospel, he talks a few times about the kingdom, several times. Um, Other New Testament authors 
tend to use different terminology. John uses uh, the phrase eternal life a lot. Um, Paul uses uh, salvation maybe most predominantly. You know, Matthew uses kingdom, etc. Kind of similar ways to talk about the same thing. When you repent and believe, you become heirs of eternal life. Uh, Titus 3. That's, that's in your inheritance. Eternal life is, is, yours, is yours to have. You become an heir of salvation, Hebrews 1. That's, you, you get to have salvation. That's going to, that's going to be passed on to you. <laughs> you get your citizenship changed to the kingdom, uh, Colossians 1.13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. All these have a sense of something that is, is awaiting us, but they also have a sense of something that is true right now. You can experience eternal life right now. You can experience salvation right now. You can experience the benefits of God's kingdom rule right now. Um, our world... It, is a mess. That's obvious. Uh, we're a mess. That's, that's also typically obvious. Um, even so, we can have and we can experience righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, because he's placed his righteousness on us. We can have a right relationship with God. We can even, uh, we can even do righteous things because of Christ. We can have joy. It's a happiness beyond circumstances. Things don't all have to be all lined up perfect for us to have happiness. No, with Christ, in his kingdom realm, we can have that. Can we have peace that's beyond comprehension, like it says in Philippians? Yeah, we can have that right now. We can have hope that never fails. We can have forgiveness, no longer any condemnation, guilt, shame. We can have all that right now by living in God's realm of his rule. So you enter the realm of kingdom, salvation, eternal life. You enter that realm by repenting and what? Believing. Good, good. You're all still here. But how do you experience it now? I think that is through discipleship. We follow Jesus around, clinging to him, abiding in him, and we start experiencing all the benefits of life, salvation, and being in the kingdom right now. So how... Do we live as disciples of Jesus? Well, that's what the whole rest of the book of Mark is about. We're going to follow Jesus around and see what it means to follow Jesus around, to be his disciple, to be his apprentice, and experience these things right now. Mark summarizes Jesus' message saying, Jesus went around and said this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is a hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And this calls for a response. It calls for an urgent response. It calls for a heart response. And I think there's a couple things, just by way of conclusion, that we need to do with this information. Two uh, challenges. Don't mean to blow your mind with a double challenge week. You know, I usually just have one. But um, I think we all need to consider these two things. And the first challenge is, we need to trust the good news. The time is right now. The time is at hand. Um, it's possible, because 
uh, I see it happen a lot, that people can grow up in the church or be around church for a while, but have never turned from and turned to Christ. Um, that, that could be today. <laughs> that could be today in the quietness of your heart. You could transfer your allegiance by trusting in Christ. Uh, maybe there's someone else here in this room you're comfortable talking with that you think already understands this. I, just ask them. Say, hey, can you help me understand this? I'd be completely happy to talk with you through this, to look at some of the Scripture passages. Um, you can just catch me afterwards. You can email me. You can call the office. You can take one of those little Connect cards in front of you and just, I think there's even a box that says you want to talk to a pastor or something. If there's not a box, make up a box on that card and, and stick it in that wooden box on your way out. And uh, I'd just love to talk to you about that. So you can be sure that, yes, <laughs> I, uh, I have responded to Jesus' offer of the kingdom. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. The, the time of decision is now. That's the heart of Jesus' message. But for the rest of us, we, we need to tell the good news. This message that Jesus went around telling is the very same message that he um, entrusted his disciples with, and it's the very same message uh, at the end of his ministry that he entrusted all of us with. We need to go around and tell people that God is doing something. The time is right now to respond. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, you need to repent and believe. Stop trusting those other things you're trusting in and trust in Jesus. Well, obviously, this is the summary statement of his message. And as we explore the rest of Mark, we'll fill in, uh, we'll fill in the, the rest of what it means to believe the gospel and to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to invite the, um, the worship team to come on back up here.